Now, starting with uh, Pastor Keith's sermon last week, over the next upcoming weeks, we are going to be taking time through the Psalms, specifically uh, the Psalms of Lament. The Psalms have a special quality about them within the Scriptures. We believe that all Scripture is inspired by God. We believe that this is his word living and active to us. But the Psalms have a special quality about them because the Psalms are prayers to God. As inspired by God, they are God's word to us. But as prayers to God, they are God's own words that allow us to speak to God maturely through the many circumstances of life. In this way, the Psalms are kind of like um, the mother of a patient two-year-old. A two-year-old may have an underdeveloped vocabulary. A two-year-old, understandably, is emotionally immature. And the best way that an underdeveloped and immature child can communicate when they're in need to their mother is sometimes just crying. But a patient mother and a wise mother cooperates with that child in their underdeveloped immaturity. The mother knows what that child's cry means. The mother doesn't need to hear discernible words, but knows exactly what she should do. And a wise mother, rather than just giving the child the thing that she knows the child needs, the wise mother might first bring that thing the child needs to them and then give them the words that they need to say. Do you need this? And then the child can then take those words her mother gives her. Yes, I need this. And the child is given what he needs. This is what the Psalms do to form our underdeveloped and immature spiritual life. We are so often, as Pastor Keith told us last week, like children than we would care to admit. In our spiritual immaturity, we don't even know what to cry out. Sometimes in our pride and arrogance, we don't even cry out at all because we think that we are the ones that can solve our own problems and we are sufficient in ourselves. But when we come to a place of hopeless desperation, we might not even have the words to cry out. But the Psalms, in those moments, give us the words that we can pray so that we can turn to God and find what the soul needs. Lord willing, that's what these upcoming weeks can do for us. David finds himself in one of those times where he's crying out in Psalm 61. The circumstances that he writes this psalm isn't explicit in the text. Historically, uh, preachers and commentators have thought the best explanation was that David wrote this psalm at the time when his son Absalom had incited a conspiracy against him. Absalom was bitter towards his father. And in 2 Samuel 13, uh, chapter 13 to 15, it describes how Absalom conspired over the course of four years to turn popular opinion away from his father towards himself. And when 
the tide finally turned, he sparked an insurrection that forced David out of his throne, away from Jerusalem, away from the presence of God's tabernacle, and into hiding for fear of his life again. This is likely the circumstances when Psalm wrote, uh, David wrote Psalm 61. And there, exiled from his office, outcast from his home, he found himself away from the tabernacle. He found himself farther away from God than he could ever imagine. What should we do? when we feel and seem so far from God. What should you do when you feel farther away from God than you could imagine? Psalm 61 will show us, like David, we need to learn to cry out. When you're in a desolate place, cry out. When you're in a desolate place, cry out with desperate prayers. And there, God can shape your heart to determined praise. When you're in a desolate place, cry out with desperate prayers, and God can shape your heart into determined praise. Through this psalm, we're going to Look and see what it's like to be in a desolate place. We're going to see David model for us desperate prayers that we need to learn. And then it's, we'll see how God can shape our desperation into a determination to praise him. When you're in a desolate place, cry out with desperate prayers and God can shape your heart into determined praise. So what was David's experience like in a desolate place? Look at verse 1 again with me, 1 to verse 3. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been a refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. I think David felt four things in this desolate place. First, he was disheartened. Excuse me, that's number two. Spoiler alert. <laughs> You're going to get a group of D's here. David felt first disoriented. End of the earth. I don't know where the end of the earth geographically literally would have been from where David was, but he wasn't as far away geographically as he could have been. He could have been farther. But he was so cast out as a result of the circumstances that his sense was, I'm farther away from God. This is the farthest away from God that I could ever be. I can't get any farther than this. Disoriented. He was disoriented and he was disheartened. From the ends of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Do you remember who David was? This was the man who wasn't just a mighty man of valor, this was the man who led an army of mighty men of valor. This was the man who, who, who stood up to the giant Goliath. This was a man of bravery and courage, and in a moment, gone. Disoriented, 
disheartened. Then he felt disabled, spiritually impotent. He's asking, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. There's this stability, security, sanctuary that was ripped away from him that he wanted. But he, he described this as, as a rock, some, some place that he wanted to get to, but it's higher than him. It's inaccessible. It's elusive. He couldn't get him himself. He was spiritually disabled to find it. That's a desolate place. Disoriented, disheartened, disabled. Have you found yourself in a place like that? Are you in a place like that now? I, think it's, I can think of several times in my own life when I felt like this. Desolate places make us feel like we are helpless. But David's prayer shows us that in those places, we are not beyond help, even though we may feel helpless. Like David, when you're in a desolate place, cry out with desperate prayers. I want to show you what David's desperate prayer looks like. And I think there's a lot of reasons why we don't pray the way David prays. I think the number one is a self-sufficiency. We see that we're in a desolate place, but we think that I can pull up my own bootstraps and I can get out myself. You may feel disoriented, may you feel disheartened, but you're not willing to admit that you're disabled. And as a result, we can't get to that place of faith and trust in God to actually grab the buoy that the Lord has thrown out to you. Desperate prayers require that childlike humility, and you won't get to it if you won't admit that. Also, I think the desperate prayers, we can't get to it, that actually gets us the deliverance that only God can bring, maybe because of a sense of self-righteousness. Because it asks us, desperate prayers ask us to show a side of ourselves to God that we would rather not. And because of our self-righteousness, we can't get to that humility that God wants to help. To that faith that God does answer. But David, David's desperate prayer shows us humility when we'd rather be self-sufficient and shows us dependency when we'd rather be self-righteous. What does it look like? Notice the deep, deep pleading that he has with God. He repeats emphatically, before he even prays the prayer, he just pleads with God that he would hear his prayer. The repetition in verse 1 shows the emphatic nature that God would just listen. Hear my cry. Listen to his prayer. He doesn't just offer his prayer. He's just asking that God would listen to his prayer. He describes his prayer as crying. And he describes it as calling. Crying demonstrates that this desperate prayer is not a silent one. He's lifting his voice. Desperate. He's not silent about what he needs. He's also calling to God. Prayers that call to God is, is this idea of like summoning, summoning God. This is like a 911 call. 
The person on the other end is trained to be calm and cool, to know exactly how to guide you, but, but you're calling them, and you don't have it hauled together, but you're like, I need someone to come here now. You need to come and give me the help, and there's no one else. He's lifting his voice. He's not silent about what he needs. He's summoning God. You alone can be provided. Have you prayer, prayed prayers like this before? We have different personalities and different ways that we express our desperation. Jesus prayed prayers like this. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. When you've come to a place of having to pray desperate prayers, what does it look like for you? How does your personality convey that desperation? For me, desperate prayers often look like putting on my shoes, going for a walk down the Rouge Valley Trail in Markham where I can know I can be alone so I can actually lift up my voice, with a few, center my mind on God's word, and lift up my voice with a few simple words to plead. Like the way Jesus taught us to pray in Luke that we ought often to pray and never give up with the parable of the widow who's looking for a judge for justice. And she just kept praying the same thing. Give me justice, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. For me, it's going on a walk so I can be by myself. And I don't need to pretend to put on some veneer, but I can just be helpless before God who can help me. Different people have different personalities, though. For you, desperate prayers may look different in different ways. For instance, I think of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Her desperate prayer was on her knees in the tabernacle, pouring out her heart before God. But the scripture says there were no words, only her lips were moving. And her face was filled with tears. I think desperate praying, this kind of crying and calling, is less about the volume and more about the tone. It's the kind of unvarnished prayer when our words and our postures before God naturally express outwardly the state of our soul inwardly. Do you feel like you know God in a way that you can be yourself before him like that? When you're in a desolate place, it calls for desperate prayers. And after pleading with God to just hear his prayer, then we simply see the substance of David's prayer in verse 2. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's the simplicity of David's prayer here. He's disoriented, disheartened, disabled. He wants stability, security, sanctuary. And it's elusive and he can't get it, so he turns to God. Lead me. I don't know where I'm going. I can't get there myself. But it seems like this isn't the first time David's had to pray this prayer. And I think it gives him the confidence to pray this prayer. 
Look at verse 3. It says, For you, notice the past tense language, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. I think David isn't praying this prayer for the first time because he's had to pray it before and he's seen God prove himself stable, secure as a sanctuary. He's seen God prove himself to be a refuge. He's seen God prove himself to be a strong tower against the enemy. These were significant images for uh, the Israelites. And I hope they're helpful for you so that you can see how trustworthy God is when you're in that desolate place. In Israel's law, God had Moses set apart specific cities that were called cities of refuge. And if someone were uh, guilty under the law for a crime committed accidentally, for instance, like manslaughter, the family of the person who was killed has the right to be able to uh, get justice for him. But if it's proven that, and it's clear that he uh, did not commit that crime maliciously, he was not harboring grudge against them, but it was just accidental, this man could flee to a city of refuge. And in that refuge, he was protected by the law that his life would be spared if he stayed there. David is saying that he has had times when he's run to God, when other people were trying to take his life, when he had done no wrong, when he had run to God, God had proven to keep him securely. Cities of refuge or fortified cities also had strong walls. Walls with towers, like a watchtower that could look out against an enemy. And in the engineering and the construction of fortified cities in ancient times, the watchtower would serve as an anchor point for the wall. Everything the entire wall that kept the city secure was built out from the watchtower. David looks to God as someone who's preserved him and protected him and said, all my strength, all my stability, all my sanctuary, all my security is built and anchored on you, God. And because God has proven that to him in the past, he has the confidence to be able to pray that in the present. I think one of the many reasons, as I mentioned before, maybe it's our arrogance, maybe it's our self-righteousness. I think one of the reasons that we struggle to be able to get to that place of trust where we can be ourselves before God and pray desperate prayers is because we're just young and we've never been in a place like this before. And we've never had to ask God for help like this before. If you struggle to trust God, that he can lead you when you're in a desolate place then you need to look to the witness of others. First Christian, look to the witness of Scripture. Look to the cloud of witnesses who have come before us in history. Look to Joseph, the man who was abandoned by others and left for dead, but not forgotten by God. The man who was mistreated by others, but found favor with God. And after the length of his trial that was decades in, in, uh, in duration, he could stand to the face of the people who wronged him and say, humbly, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Look to Naomi. Naomi, who is homeless in a family, bereaved by the loss of her husbands and sons. But when it seemed like she was all alone, God visited her with redemption. 
And when others saw the way that God's redeeming power had transformed her life, and when they saw her knowing her story about what all that she had lost, other people looked at the joy in her and said, she went away empty, she came back full. Look to the testimony. Look to the witness of Scripture. And Christian, look to the body of Christ around you. You may for the first time have been wounded and have an open have that open wound that you think will never heal. There are men and women in this church who have lived double your life who can show you all of the scars that God has fully healed and shown that each one is evidence that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The witness of God's faithfulness can build in you the trust so that you can just be open before God, praying desperate prayers in desolate place. And when you see that God is trustworthy, even though you're not where you want to be, you can see that God can bring you back to where you belong. That was the next phase in David's prayer. He simply prays, lead me to the rock. I've seen you do it before. And then he hasn't been brought out of that place, but but he asks that he would be brought back to where he would belong. Verse 4, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Both these references, the tent, the refuge under God's wings, these are both references that David uses using to refer to the tabernacle, the place where God's altar was and sacrifices were made, the place where the Holy of Holies was and the Ark of the Covenant was, the place where God's presence dwelt with his people and they could come and worship him. He prays that he would be there forever, taking refuge with God. See, David desires to be back there, and that's the place, I believe, where he feels so far removed from. I think the trouble in David's troubles wasn't just the trouble itself. What Absalom was doing to David was horrific. He was betrayed by his own son. He was forsaken by his own people. He was exiled from his home. But the trouble of his troubles wasn't just the trouble itself. It's not just that he's wandering in the wilderness Again, It's not just that he's forsaken again. It's not that just he's betrayed again. I think the real trouble that David felt was that he was severed from God's blessed presence. And he wanted to be with God again. He wanted to be with God, worshiping God again. See, when we find ourselves in desolate places, I think the trouble in our troubles isn't just the trouble itself but it's the way that we feel severed from God and all that he is supposed to be to us. When we're in desolate places, we ask questions. Where, where is God's goodness? It's supposed to renew me like the eagle's wings, but I feel clipped and grounded. Where is God's steadfast love? It's supposed to endure forever, but it feels like it it's expires quicker than, than sour milk. It's where is mercies? They're supposed to be new every morning, but it feels like it's worn out like old clothes. 
The real trouble that we feel in our troubles is that we don't know where God is in all that he promised to be to us. But take heart, friend. If you find yourself in that place where you feel severed from God's presence, then you find yourself exactly where Christ went for us when he went to the cross. The trouble of the cross wasn't just the cross itself. It wasn't just the betrayal of a friend or the abandonment by the rest. It wasn't just the ridicule. It wasn't just the mocking of false and malicious witnesses. It wasn't just the public shaming. It wasn't just the whipping and the torture that so marred the body of Christ beyond the resemblance of what a human being should be. The real trouble of the cross was the words that Christ yelled out while he stood there hanging, quoting David in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you feel that? Have you felt that? Our confidence, our confidence is the assured hope of the gospel. See, Christian, he was forsaken so that in him you could be forgiven. He was severed so that in him you can be secure. And though you may not feel it, the assured hope of the gospel is the promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. And that you will be with him forever. And it's that hope that can give us the assurance in desolate places that we will be near to God again. That we can be enjoying worship in his presence again. Weeping may tarry for the night. Joy does come in the morning. When you're in a desolate place, cry out to God with desperate prayers. It's our hope that God will be true to us in eternity, but that also God will be true to us now and show his goodness to us in the land of the living. When we cry out to God in desolate places with desperate prayers, it's there that he can shape your heart into a determination to praise. It's hard uh, to believe it, but we're nine months through 2022 now. And I kind of ask this question in jest because I probably know the answer. But to those of you who made New Year's resolutions nine months ago, how's it going? <laughs> Often when uh, we try and make resolutions or desire to change, the motive and the effort often kind of is trimmed down to willpower, right? Determination. An app that used to be popular, but isn't really an app anymore that's used called Foursquare. Maybe some of you used Foursquare in the past. So Foursquare nowadays, the tech company, operates mainly as um, just like a data bank for other people. And they specialize in location data and search data. And a couple of years ago, Foursquare started this trend where every year they started tracking what their data suggested, how long it took for people to fall off the wagon with their New Year's resolutions. And the way that they tracked this uh, to be able to make this conclusion was they, an aggregate, gathered all of the uh, location check-ins and search history for fast food restaurants and fitness centers. And always on January 1st, uh, there was more 
uh, data in, for fitness centers. But a threshold would hit, um, n- not surprisingly, pretty quickly, where fast food restaurant data would uh, be increased over the other. And the trend year after year is usually that it's uh, seven days into February. And they've anointed that day as the day they call the fall off the wagon day. I I think our experience demonstrates that when we want to see change, the potency of our willpower is pretty impotent. When we're in a desolate place, the willpower, the determination to actually praise God there in that place really not good enough to bring us to be the people of worship that he wants us to be. When we're disoriented, disheartened, and disabled, the security, the stability, the sanctuary we want is out of our reach. We don't have it in it. We we don't have the heart for it. Yet in verse 5, we see that David somehow has the heart David comes to a place in verse 5 where he, he makes a determined, a determined vow that he's going to praise God again. And he believes that God has heard that vow. Verse 4, For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned before God forever. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Verse 5 is his bookend with verse 9 where he brings up his vows again. So I will ever praise your name as I perform my vows day to day. Verse 5, he's making these vows that he believes God heard. Verse uh, 8, excuse me, he anticipates himself performing those vows in the tabernacle again. But we don't have any indication that he's back there. It seems like he's still in this desolate place. How is he determined to be able to praise God when he's still there? Well, in between verse 5 and verse 8, we see that David's determined confidence to praise God is not governed by his own willpower. It's anchored in two promises of God. This is the end of our humanity, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we can do that in our desolate places. But the way we can do that, the potency to do that, is only if our faith is anchored in the promises of God. David's is anchored in two here. David's faith was first anchored in the promise of God's inheritance. That's what he's talking about when he says that you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. The heritage isn't those who fear your name. It's the heritage that belongs to or is associated with all those who fear his name. And this word inheritance is often seen in the scriptures in the book of Deuteronomy that refers to the land of promise that God was going to give and deliver to all of Abraham and his offspring, to the nation of Israel. That land was the heritage, was the inheritance that they had. And notice that he's using past tense language again. He said previously, you have been my refuge, you have been a strong tower. He's saying, you have given me the heritage of those who fear his name. Now, David right now is not enjoying the inheritance of a citizen of Israel. 
he's being treated like an exile and an outcast. But even though he's not being treated as he truly is, he knows that his circumstances don't define his identity. And he's determined to praise God again because he sees God's promises through his circumstances. David's faith was anchored in the promise of his inheritance. David's faith was also anchored in the promise of God's king. This is pretty interesting. It it kind of seems like out of place that all of a sudden he goes into this prayer for the king, especially because he is the king at that time. Is he like praying for himself? Is he speaking in the third person to teach other people how to pray for him? What's, What's David actually praying for here? I think David's not referring to himself. I think he's referring to one of his sons that hasn't yet been born. David is praying, I think, for the son that God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that David would have a son who would come and have an everlasting reign under God and before the people, just like David prays in verse 6 and verse 7. But this asks another question. How is someone else's prosperity, why does someone else's character have any determination on my ability to worship? I'm sure many of you, like me, have been watching uh, what's happening in the United Kingdom with the succession of King Charles III, now over his deceased mother, Queen Elizabeth. And one of the things that we've been reminded again is that uh, Canada has a king and Uh, Charles III is our head of state. Like in the United Kingdom, in Israel, the king operated as head of the nation. As a head, the head represents those who are underneath of him. And David and his sons as kings represented the people before God. If you read through 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, you can often, you'll see like a direct correlation between the character of the king and the prosperity of the nation. Simply said, as goes the king, so go the people. If the people are going to enjoy the blessings of being in covenant with God, their king is the barometer of how the whole people is being faithful to that covenant. And in order for them to enjoy the satisfying and fulfilling worship as being a people of covenant, if that king is not faithful to it, then their ability to worship will be stripped away. They won't have joy. They won't be fulfilled. They won't be near to God as God promised that they would be. Here, David's faith is anchored in two promises, the promise of an inheritance and the promise of a king. And that is his potency to have a determination to worship God in a desolate place. Christian, do you see your Savior foreshadowed in this passage? You may feel like you're in a desolate place, but your circumstances don't determine your identity and the blessings that God has secured in you. Remember and anchor your faith in the promise of 1 Peter 1. You, Christian, have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
So even though you may feel like you are in a place where you are wearing rags and not clothed in riches, Christ has secured an inheritance for you. He is there now preparing a place for you. And he will come again to take you so that you may be also where he is. Anchor your faith in the promise of an inheritance. Anchor your faith in the promise of a faithful king. Christ's righteousness is, is what he uses to advocate for you before the Father's presence. You may be in a desolate place. You may feel like you have failed. You may feel like others have abandoned you, but your king hasn't. He has kept all the righteous requirements of the law. He has enacted a new covenant for us by his blood. He has secured your place before the Father as righteous and blameless on the basis of his righteous life and his atoning death. You are secured before your God. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is seated on a throne now, interceding for you now. Your place before God's presence to find the filling and satisfying joy of worship cannot be taken away. That's our determination of praise. We don't have the heart. We don't have the willpower. When we are in desolate places, cry out with desperate prayer. And there, because of the promises that God has secured, he can shape your heart with determined praise. Today, you may feel far from God. Where is your ends of the earth? Christian, even there, you can know that God is near to you. When you're in desolate places, cry out with desperate prayers, and God can shape your heart with determined praise to worship him again. Let's pray together now.